0: You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. People think about growing spiritually, they think about two things. They're typically like, well, I should probably read the Bible, and I should probably pray. And that's what people think about. When I'm going to grow spiritually, I should read the Bible, and I should pray, which is true. You should read the Bible, and you should pray, but let's be honest. There's a lot of skeptics out there when it comes to the issue of prayer. Like, literally, I have a friend who I would talk to about different stuff, and he's like, honestly, I'm just, Dave, I'm just not sold on prayer. I say, well, why not? He says, well, listen. He goes, I think that people pray, and if it happens what they were asking for, then they say, oh, prayer did it. And then, if it doesn't happen, then what happened then? He goes, does prayer not work? Like what happens when you pray for something and it doesn't happen? You know, you're just going to blame parents. So he said to me, he goes, so for me, I think prayer is really circumstantial and just way people interpret life. And I wanted to say to him, man, you totally misunderstand the point because a person who does that is like the person who looks at God as their vending machine. And they're like, God, I'm putting in the money and I'm pushing the buttons. And if all of a sudden, it's like, I, I, I'm hoping that it's on the way. The answer to my prayer is like the Doritos fell and they're coming halfway down and they turn sideways and they stick in the glass and they don't get down to the bottom where you can get it and you bang on the, on the vending machine. You're like, this vending machine doesn't work. You're like, why? Why is it? You know What's wrong with me that I don't get what I put in the vending machine? And sadly, that's the way a lot of people look at prayer and then they give up. But I think we completely misunderstand the point because prayer is just a, people have expectations when they bring prayer. When they think what prayer is supposed to accomplish and what prayer is supposed to do, they bring expectations with them. And that's not looking at prayer at all. And, And Jesus at this point, his disciples are following him around. They're looking at Jesus like a rabbi they're saying, we're the disciples of this particular rabbi. And they're seeing other disciples, people following other people that are kind of rabbinic in that time, in that day, in that age. And they're looking at like, for example, John the Baptist. And John has some disciples who had followed John around. Many of them left and actually followed Jesus, which wasn't a discount to John. It was just that Jesus is a king, and John always said, less of me, more of you in regard to Jesus. But they looked at the disciples of John, and and they would see that John was teaching them how to pray. And then they're watching Jesus, and as Jesus is going about his ministries, he's being a miracle worker, as he's being a healer, as he's going about his ministry, oftentimes Jesus would just start praying. He'd look up to the heavens, and he would begin to pray. And they're asking a question, well, Jesus, teach us. Teach us how to pray. Why? Because I think all of us in this room Would like our prayer to be effective and we'd like it to be real and intimate. Not just a list of things, not just telling God everything that's going on like a diary, but we want our prayer to actually work. We want our prayer to be effective. We want to know how to pray. And so Jesus' disciples at this time are asking him, hey, teach us how to pray. And so for us, as we talk today, in order to understand what prayer is, we've got to understand what prayer isn't. And so on your outline, you've got some fill in the blanks and write this down. Prayer is not worrying out loud. Prayer is not worrying out loud. Do you realize that that's what a lot of people just think? They, some of you think that. You just think, well, people pray because they're just kind of worrying out loud and they get reassured as they worry out loud and they think that's what prayer is and we see it all the time in our culture, right? It'll be hashtag, pray for Wuhan, right? And what it means is like, oh, I'm having some compassion for them or I'm hoping for them or i'm I'm wishing for them, and I'm worried for those people, and so they're going to say like they think prayer is just us worrying socially out loud, and that's not what prayer is it's not what it is It's not saying, Oh, you know, pray for Kobe Bryant family and the other families of the people who were affected by the helicopter crash that happened last weekend, about six hundred yards from my brother's house while we were in church, and none of us knew none of us knew, and if we're just going to If we're just going to worry for those families that we've never met out loud, then why pray? It's not really effective. What we're actually doing is saying, God, the God of all comfort, would you from heaven bring comfort down to those families and their losses in a way that we can't? We'll never meet those people. We don't know them, but God, you do. And and when we pray, it activates heaven and God's peace that passes understanding can be Activated in the lives of family members of people down there in Southern California. That's what happens. Prayer is not just worrying out loud, it's effective, it is powerful. Second thing, prayer is not emptying your mind. Prayer is not emptying your mind. How do I know? Because it's a relationship. How many of you in this room are like, I got to empty my mind for me to have a conversation with somebody? Now, some of you, you got minds that just won't stop. They're just run, run, run. you got to think about, well, what do I want to have a conversation about? That's good and you're going to have a conversation with somebody else. But you don't sit there and be like, I just need to empty myself and empty my mind if I'm going to go ahead and pray. And our culture teaches us through trying to meditate or through other things to just empty your mind and empty yourself. But Scripture teaches us, don't empty your mind. If you're emptying your mind, you're opening yourself up for the enemy to come along and begin to feed you lies and hoping that you'll make agreements with them. In fact, the scriptures say, take thought, every thought captive, make it obedient to Christ. It doesn't say empty your mind and and just be, you know, completely wide open. It's saying, no, your mind is important. Your thoughts are critical. Take your thoughts captive. Make them obedient to Christ. Be of a sound mind. So it's not emptying your mind. You would never do that if you're going to have a, you know, in a conversation with someone. More often, you got to talk, right? you got to talk with people, and you get things off your mind in a relationship. You, you have a conversation with somebody, and you kind of close all the windows in your mind, or, or all these things that are woven together. You kind of download them, and you feel a lot better because you've had a conversation with them. Prayer is not emptying your mind. It's actually engaging it. So we identify that I am a child of God. And we're reminded in prayer that we're talking to God and that we're reminded of his word. And we're reminded that we have access to him. Write this down. Prayer is not wishing the universe would direct you. It's a confidence in whom you're praying to, the true and the living God. See, all the time I see like, people would be like, well, the universe has decided and I just need to claim it. And so they think, if I just hustle harder, if I just do more, then I'm going to receive what the universe has already, out of its generosity, decided to give to me, and it's a wrong identification. The universe, if you think about really the stars and all those places, it's uninhabitable for you. The radiation alone would kill most of us before we got to half the things we'd want to see in the sky, it was not made to be inhabited by people like you and me. The earth is so unique within the universe. The universe hasn't decided anything for you. But God decides a lot for us, and God's word decides a lot for us. It's not wishing the universe would do it. It's not that you've got to try harder and that some nebulous force or that people think it's fate. So they kind of throw their hands up and they're like, well, whatever fate or the universe has decided for me, I'll just take that. And it's not. God has orchestrated the times and the places where you live. He directs your steps. He, there's nothing that surprises him in your life, whether it's your sin or whether it's your losses or whether it's your pain. Nothing in that regard is a surprise to God. It's not wishing that the universe would direct you. It's coming to a true and a living God in relationship with him. Here's why you need this sermon. I really believe that most people want their prayer to be intimate and effective. So we want to learn from Jesus how to pray as he would teach us to pray. Jesus' response to the disciples' question, Lord, teach us to pray is recorded in the books of Matthew and also in the book of Luke. We're in the book of Luke. We're going to look at that account today. And as we go through it, you're going to say, well, over the years, I've heard the Lord's Prayer have a little bit different verbiage in it. Well, we're going to look at what's recorded in Luke, and neither Luke nor Matthew misrepresent in any way what Jesus said. In fact, both, I think, capture the heart of what Jesus was saying. In Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 1, if you have your Bible, turn there. But Luke 11, beginning with verse 1, It said this, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John, John the Baptist, right, taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. And right there, Jesus begins to give us the basics for how you and I can pray and orchestrate our prayers in a way that's both pleasing to God, but in a way that also is powerful for our lives, that it makes a difference in what we experience. So we're not banging on a vending machine, shaking our hands at heaven, saying, Why don't I get my Doritos? First thing he does, we want to start by engaging God on three levels. If you're taking notes today, write this down. God is loving. Approach him intimately as Daddy. That's really what it means. I mean, I don't know if you ever, maybe you've grown up around the church or you've heard about the Lord's Prayer, and it always sounds something like this: "Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name." Right? And it goes on and on, and it's got these and those, and it sounds very like high culture. And the truth is what Jesus is using, the word he's using here is a word of intimacy. It's not father. I mean, could you imagine being at the Super Bowl party today and maybe you're there with your dad. And you're there and you look over and you say, our father, would thou pass me the chips? (laughs) Probably would be a little awkward. And they'd be like, yeah, we need to cut him off right here because things got a little awkward. No, it's not what you're going to do. And what he's saying is you want to do it in a term of intimacy that Abba Daddy. It's a very personal thing. God is loving. Like, you can approach him. He delights in you. And this is where I truly believe the enemy loves to exert the most power that he has and it's in this. If the enemy can convince you that God doesn't delight in you, that God's got some issue with you, then he thinks he can win. That's what the enemy thinks. Because then you and I kind of come before God and we're like, well, I I know I have sinned, but you feel like there's something between you and God, and you can't actually like, be authentic with him, and, and maybe you're a burden to him, and maybe he doesn't care. Or he's got something against you, and you come with shame, or you come with guilt, and the truth is our sins have been washed away. We are the righteousness of Christ. We're, in a sense, as righteous because of Christ's sacrifice, as Christ himself, that we have full boldness to approach the throne of grace. It's a beautiful thing that God has given us, and he says, talk to him like daddy in intimacy. He's loving. Second thing God is, God is up. He's the one in the heavens. So he's not like your earthly father or your earthly source of of income or whatever else. He, He is the God that's up. He's in the heavens. And when you hear like in old ways, it sounds like our father who art in heaven. And what that sounds like, it sounds like he's in a faraway place. Like, I can't get there. I can't see him. I can't approach him he art in heaven. Sounds very far away to me. And what it really means here is this, the one, our God, the one who is in the heavens. You know what that means? That God created the heavens as a signpost to you and me that he's as available as the stars you see. Now you can't approach the star or go live on a star, but every night if you look up, you can see the stars and God saying, I'm available to you like that. And only that, I'm not just a God of the earth or a God of this world. I am the God who is creator of the heavens and the earth. He's available to him. And Jesus oftentimes in the scripture is like, we will, many times when we pray, people bow their heads or close their eyes. It helps us concentrate, think about ourselves, think about our own life, think about, not distract the people around us. But in the scriptures all the time when you watch the life of Jesus, it says he looked up at the heavens or he lifted his eyes up to heaven. And when I was a junior higher, I would always picture that, like lifted his eyes to heaven. I'd be like, <laughs> it was just weird. Like I always picture that. I'm like, that's not what it means. Like he just looked up. So Jesus is with his disciples and he's talking to them. And when he talks to God, guess what he does? He just says, father, I'm like daddy, you're holy. And he just starts talking to God. What God is talking to? The one in the heavens. The God who's in the heavens. He's not simply of this world. He's not of this world. And he is a God who exists and dwells in the heavens. But he's the God who loved us enough to become flesh. And the God who loves us enough to give his Holy Spirit to dwell in us here on earth in our living years. Number three, write this down. God is holy. He is holy. Approach his name with respect and endearment. So what happens? When we pray, we fix our minds on God. We orient our world around him. See, that's that's what people oftentimes get wrong. They think that I got to inform God about everything going on in my world. So I just tell God, God, hears everything going on. I got to orient. The truth is when I come to pray and when I acknowledge that I can access my daddy and that he loves me, he's delighted in me, that's how God feels about you. He delights in you. You come to him. He's delighted already. You've just come to him. He's just delighted before you said anything. He's delighted you've come. And you just acknowledge, God, you're the one in the heavens. You're holy. And in that moment, what we're doing is we're taking our world and our problems, and we're orienting our world around him, who he is. That he is a God, that he's much bigger than our problems. He's much bigger than our concerns. He's much bigger, more powerful than our means of handling our lives and our circumstances. God is beyond that. He is much bigger than that. There's actually a release. Isn't it beautiful that you don't have to come and be like, God, I gotta tell you like every single thing that's going on in my life, like you're writing to a diary? Instead, you're just saying, God, this is, this is me, and I'm bringing myself to you, my daddy. There's a release. Like, God, God I've got problems. I've got weaknesses. I've got issues. But God, I'm bringing me to you and I'm remembering who you are. You're the one in the heavens. You're the one who's holy. And God, there's a release of that. You know what? It's not all up to me. I've got support. I'm coming to a God who delights in me. Isn't that freeing? It's a beautiful picture. So we approach his name with respect but also endearment. That he's not an evil God. That he's not a Sick and wrong, punishing God. He's not like some of the gods you would see in Greek mythology, but that He's holy. He's right. Isn't it nice to go to the God who's right? He's just right all the time. He's right. If you're going to go to somebody, go to the ones right. And He loves you and He cares for you. So right away, we engage God on three levels that we can be intimately, that He's the one who dwells in the heavens, that He's holy. And now, Jesus instructs us in these asks. So there is a point where you and I, when we come to pray, we should ask. We have needs. We want to be honest about what's going on in our world. And so we're going to ask God some things, and Jesus gets right to them. And and write this down. Number four, in spite of all that's going on, we remain confident in God who is bringing his kingdom on earth. Oftentimes, you'll hear this uh you'll hear this that it'll say your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven the matthew account will say and the point is this that the kingdom of god that always is working that always exists is to come down and be active at work on earth as it always is in heaven but active on earth you know who the kingdom of god comes through on earth started with jesus And then when he gives us his Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God has now come to earth, and it's worked out through his people, the church. God has called you and I to be kingdom workers, to be ones who are about his kingdom. But the truth is, we got to come before God with weaknesses and requests and all these things. And we're saying, God, I'm bringing who I am, and I have needs and issues, and I'm going to bring it. But God, what I really want, the deepest part of my heart really wants, is that your kingdom is done that your will is done on earth because it's always done that way in heaven his kingdom is going to come and work and be in us and work through us so his authority and his action and the presence of God we want it to be all around and working on earth so he says it's your kingdom it's not my kingdom but what happens all the time when you and I pray It's my kingdom, it's my kingdom, it's my kingdom, it's my kingdom. God, do for me. God, do this. God, you have to do this for me. And it's not even a give and take. It's not opening myself that my life and my pains and my circumstances and my troubles can all be used to the glory of God and his kingdom. But it's people trying to say, I want relief from everything. I want a problem-free life. And Jesus reminds us that it's so healthy for us to pray, God, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come write this down. Give us today the bread that does not run out. This delivers us from the fear that we will not have enough. will not have enough. Give us today the bread. What kind of bread? The kind of bread that does not run out. In fact, if you literally translate Jesus's words here, this is what it says. It doesn't say give us our daily bread. It says give us Today, the bread that does not run out. Now remember, any Middle Eastern person, especially a Jewish person, would remember that when the Israelites left Egypt, they were freed by God under Pharaoh's reign, and they went out into the desert, and they walked in the desert, and they're like, how in the world is God going to feed over a million people in the middle of the desert where you don't see an animal for like forever? And so how is this going to happen? And they woke up the next morning, and on the ground was some stuff. And they didn't know what it was. And so they walked up to it, and they said, hmm, manna. And the other guy goes, I don't know. You know why? Because the word manna means, what is it? I don't know. You taste it. I'm not tasting it. (laughs) You taste it. And what happened was God would provide for them every day edible manna on the ground, like a bread on the ground. And so people initially, they tried to collect. God said, Go collect the manna for just what you need for the day. And people are like, that's good advice, but I'm going to collect what I need for the week. And so they would collect a whole bunch, and then they would find out at the end of the day it had rotted. And God would just give them every day what they needed for that day. Why? Because he knows human nature. He knows that if we were to collect enough, we would forget our need for God. And God wants to give us today the bread that does not run out. I like that this bread is our bread. Give us our bread. It's not my bread. It's our bread. What do we need? What does his church need? What do his people need? It's not merely food, it's the reminder and request that God alone is our source. What does it mean? You've not been orphaned. All the time, people are worried it's gonna run out, my money's gonna run out. My time is going to run out. My health is going to run out. And God's saying, come to me and ask today for what you need. And I'm your source. I'll be your source. See, and that's the hard part because people all the time are trying to stockpile. And yet literally tomorrow I get on a plane, I'm going to fly to Thailand, I'm going to be there at a conference for ELIC, and then I'm getting on another plane after a week, and I'm flying to India, and we're going to be with little kids in our villages that people here are sponsoring one-to-one so that these kids get clothed, they get fed every day, they get educated, they get the chance to either become nurses or go into IT or to to actually uh, do textiles like clothing. And, uh, and they, it's amazing, amazing work. And I'm going to be like the happiest guy on the planet going and seeing some of these kids because just of the work that our church is doing there. And by I mean our church, I mean people who sponsor. I don't just mean generally our church. I mean if you're sponsoring a kid in India, then it's just phenomenal. We're going to go see your kids, and it's going to be phenomenal. You think I'll be the happiest guy in the world for kids I saw three years ago or four years ago now, and I'll get to see them again. It's going to be phenomenal. But again, through God's kingdom, Their needs are being met just what they need for today, for every day. They have not been orphaned. These are people who are forgotten and outcast by society. And in the same way, when we pray, God, give us today the bread that does not run out, it reminds us that we have not been orphaned by him. That we have not been abandoned. That we are not alone. That if you made a request and the Doritos didn't come out, that that doesn't mean it's going to happen to you every day that way. It means that maybe God's kingdom is going to come instead of your kingdom. And maybe he's refining us a little bit. You are not alone. Our dependence is on God and his provision. And this is where it gets tricky, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, that we either love God or we love money, but we can't love both. And so we either trust God to be our source. God, you're going to be my source or money's going to be my source. But I can't love both because one of those two masters is going to, in a sense, demand our allegiance. We become loyal to one of those two masters. And so my question is this, do you love God or do you love money? Is God your source or is money your source? And praying like Jesus prayed here reminds us that he can give us today the bread that does not run out. Francis Chan, who's a friend of myself, Mike Millette, we uh, go way back years and years, but he wrote a book called Crazy Love, and he wrote this book called Crazy Love about the love of God, like it just, it doesn't make sense, it's so, that his love is so great for you, and his love is so passionate about you and your life, that it just, it seems crazy to us, because love typically has to do with performance or love typically has to do what you do for other people than they try to reciprocate for you. But he wrote this book called Crazy Love and it just went crazy that book did and it hit like national bestseller list and literally he made a lot of money on that book and he right up front said, I will take all the proceeds of that book and all of it I'm going to give to the mission work that we do for a school he had set up through his church in Africa and accountants, and bookkeepers, and well-intentioned friends, and other people came to him and said, Francis, what are you doing? You're crazy. You have six kids. Why would you give away all that money? Why would you put that money in a different place? Like, why wouldn't you use it for yourself, and you're always trying to give it away? The, by the way, the joke at his, he had, like, sold his house, moved to a smaller house, and then sold his house, moved to a smaller house, paid off his mortgage, and uh, was living mortgage-free so he could go to the mission field anytime. And the joke at his church was whenever a large thing got delivered, like they had an air conditioner delivered one day, and it was in this big, massive box, they said, don't show Francis that box, because he'll move his family into it. Okay? <laughs> So, but he gives us away. He gives us away to this school in Africa for orphaned kids in Africa so that the kingdom of God could come so that they could have today what they need for that day and through his generosity, needs are being met and people come to him and say, what's wrong with you? Like when he does his taxes, people are like, are you serious? What are you doing? That's crazy. Why would you do that? And he said this, he said, why would I give to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Do I actually believe that it will run out, and God will criticize me for it? I mean, do you actually think that at the end of my life, God's going to go, Francis, you idiot. You gave it all away, and you starved. What am I going to do with you? Do you think that that's what God's going to say when he's in heaven? No. But what happens? We trust money. Because to us, it can become a counterfeit God. And Jesus is saying, listen, give us today, ask God, give me today the bread that does not run out. God is our source. Our dependence is always on him. Write this down. That our sins and debts be forgiven. This means two things. The things we have left undone, these are unfulfilled obligations toward other human beings. So what happens is, people always want to argue, theologians want to argue, well, is the translation of the word sins, or is it the word debts? And you've heard the Lord's prayer, prayed both ways. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have been in debt against us. Or forgive us our sins, our trespasses, for we forgive the trespasses against them. People are like, well, what is it? Sins or debts? And if you understand the full weight of the word that Jesus used here, it's both. And here's what I mean. So first of all, we have the things that we have left undone. These are unfulfilled obligations toward other human beings. In other words, it's something good that I should have done. I should have helped that person. I should have given to those who were in need. I should have said something nice to this person instead of ignoring them. I should—it's good things you should have done, but you didn't do. In a sense, there's a debt you owed them, but you didn't do it. So there's a debt. That's what a debt is. On the flip side is the things that we did that are not in harmony with the will of God. These are acts we committed. These would be what you and I understand very clearly as sins. They were actions that we did that are wrong. They're not in harmony with the will of God. These are the sins, the wrong things we do. So we confess our sins. Now, I want to walk with you real quick about confession. Confession is not coming to God with your tail between your legs. Hiding your face and saying, God, I'm the most horrible person on this planet and, and I don't think you're going to forgive me. But I got a whole list and you pull out your list and you start working your way through your list. That's not what confession is. Confession is coming before God and saying, God, I am admitting that my actions are not, I acted outside of your will. They're not what you wanted me to do. And I chose to do it anyway. In other words, instead of saying, God, I'm going to give you rule and authority in my life, I chose in that moment, I'm going to be God. And I'm going to say or do what I want to do, and I'm God, and I need to confess to you that that's wrong. See, the Bible criticizes so much, it says this, people who say they have no sin are liars, and the love of God is not in them. Confession is admitting to God that I acted outside of your will. What did I do? I chose to become God. In that moment, I said, I don't know if you're going to meet my needs, God, so I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to try to meet my own needs in an in appropriate way or in a selfish way, right? What did you do? You just sinned. So you come before God, and you're saying, God, I did things that are not in harmony with the will of God. And so we understand that they're not in harmony with the will of God. They're not in harmony with his word. And so we come before God, and there's a freedom in admitting, God, I did it my way. But God, it is your way. Like, that's what my heart, deep down underneath everything, really wants to do it your way, but I did it mine. And I just want you to know that I'm fully aware that I did that in my way. When we come to God the first time, we come to God because He has helped us to see ourselves. And so we are aware of our sin. So the first time you give your life to Christ, it's because you're like, I see myself for who I really am. I see my sin. I'm ashamed. I am guilty as charged, and I need the love and the forgiveness of God, and I can't believe that he would love me enough to give me that. There's a freedom in that, isn't there? People are always like, well, if I you know, didn't confess all my sin and I died, would I go to hell? And they just misunderstand. Confession is admitting that your sin, you acted outside the will of God's word and outside of his will. Write this down. Jesus connects then forgiveness, God's forgiveness of his people with their willingness to forgive others. Isn't that interesting that he said to them, "Forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who sins against us"? That there's an expectation in scripture that because you and I have been forgiven much, we are to forgive much. That just as we've received an immense amount of forgiveness for all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing, that we are to be like Christ. We are to say, I have been forgiven so much now, I received the forgiveness of Jesus for my sin, and now I'm going to act like Jesus and forgive others their sins. What did he say as he's hanging on a cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Jesus modeled, though he had no sin, he modeled that he would forgive the debts of those who had nailed them to the cross. He would forgive the debts of those who would be born years later, people like you and me, who would act outside of his will. People like you and me, who would not do the good things that we should do. And he would say, I choose to forgive your debts and your sins. The undone and the done of your own will. I'll forgive both. And Jesus says, my expectation for Christ followers is that you work the process to forgive other people. But let me be clear with you about this. We've talked about it before, but I want to be clear when I talk about forgiveness because most people think if I forgive, then I'm letting the person who either was indebted to me or the person who harmed me off the hook. And the truth is, they're not off the hook. They are still on God's hook. But what happens is you're taking them off your hook. You're on the hook of bitterness. You're on the hook of unforgiveness, and it takes you off that and you put them on God's hook. They're still there. They're still accountable to God for what had happened. He is not minimizing anything that's ever happened to you, but what he's saying is I am willing to choose to begin the process of forgiveness. Why? Because as long as I'm on the hook for what they've done against me, they have power over me. That's why you don't want to forgive them. Because if they didn't have power over you, you'd be like, yeah, they're forgiven. But as long as they have power over you, you're like, I think I need to still hold something against them. Now, let me say something. Forgiving people doesn't mean that you don't have great boundaries. You must have great boundaries. If a person's been a rattlesnake and you would really like them to eventually be a puppy dog, they may never change, right? They may always be a snake. So you need to have good boundaries where it's an unhealthy relationship, an unhealthy situation, a detrimental thing, an abusive situation. You have to have great boundaries. But what it means is this. You need to start the movement of forgiveness. How does that happen? It's an act of the will. So here's like a train. Here's you right here in the middle. And here's the train. The train is the engine. And way at the end is the caboose. And when you say, I choose to forgive, you don't feel like forgiving. Of course you don't feel like forgiving. Your feelings are way back here. But you say right now is an act of the will because Jesus forgave me of everything. I'm going to begin to choose to forgive. And so I choose to forgive and it starts to move the train. And then you feel like I don't feel like forgiving. And a memory comes up or whatever and i got to choose again. And you just keep that train moving. You just keep those cars moving. Every time you choose to forgive and over time, guess what happens? Your feelings catch up because the power of that person over you is now gone through the power of god through forgiveness and you're free and that's where a person can actually have compassion against someone who owes them they choose to forgive and the power of the sin against them is now gone would you like to be free then begin to be like jesus you start the engine, action of the will. I choose to forgive. Write this down. Ah, Actually, uh, let me just say this. God will judge us on how we handle the good things in life and how we handle the pains of life. When it comes to the issue of forgiveness, it often deals with the pains of others against us, right? And the pain we've experienced from other people. And God's going to judge, how did you handle that? Did you do that like I would want you to? And that's why God connects the two. He's saying, You have been forgiven everything. Will you also forgive those who have sinned against you? Knowing that you're not going to feel like it at first, but that an act of the will and obedience to God will help your feelings catch up. And it doesn't let that person off the hook at all, it gets you off the hook of bitterness. So Jesus is asking, Will you forgive? That's what God wants to know. Will you forgive? Write this down. Lead us not into temptation is better translated literally. Do not bring us to the time of trial. Don't bring us to the time of trial. Right? Because we live in a world that is uh, an evil world. It's a fallen world. And evil affects Christians and non-Christian people alike. The effects of evil in the fallen world affect people worldwide. And protection from the accuser, the evil one, and evil is always a cry from the heart in every age. People have always prayed. They've always cried out to God, praying for deliverance from the times of trial that evil brings. And Jesus is saying, it's not the issue of temptation. We hear temptation and we think, oh, well, it's just like I'm tempted to eat that food or I'm tempted to lust or I'm tempted to buy a bunch of stuff or I'm tempted to whatever, right? And that's what we think temptation is. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, pray to God for deliverance from the times of trial that evil brings. So we're going to face temptation, right? You can't say, well, well, God, just pray that I wouldn't be tempted anymore. Well, we're going to be tempted. We're tempted for a lot of reasons. But there's one thing you need to know absolutely for sure, and that is we face temptation, but it is never God tempting us. It's never God. God doesn't come along and tempt you. In fact, we look at the book in James Chapter 1, James, by the way, is the half-brother. You say, why half-brother? Well, because he's Joseph's son. And Jesus was born of God the Father and Mary. So it, he grew up in the house with Jesus, right? So James grew up in the house of Jesus. He didn't even believe Jesus was who he was until Jesus rose from the dead. Then James was like one of the first to believe. That, he's like, okay, I get it. And isn't it that way with family a lot? They're just the last to believe. They're just too close to you. They're too close to everything else. It just seems like they may not get it. But James finally believed, and this is what he wrote in his book. He said, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to sin to death and so he shows us the pattern of temptation in our life but you have to say well why are we tempted I mean it's not God tempting God doesn't send temptation but we live in a fallen world and let me tell you there's four W's and I'll give them to you real quick words that start with W that are not on your outline but these are reasons you and I are tempted first of all is our woundedness our woundedness That you and I, we have had people sin against us. There are others who have committed, you know, they owed us love, but they withheld it. They owed us respect, but they withheld it. Or, on the flip side, they did very, very wrong things to us. And we have been sinned against. We are wounded. And guess what God wants to do? God wants to heal your wounds. But part of that healing process is our willingness to forgive. But we all have wounds. So we have woundedness is one thing. Second W is weakness. Weakness. Why? We're just flesh. We're just dust. We're mortal. And we're weak. And so we have weakness. We are tempted. It's not an excuse. It's a reality. But thankfully, God gives us a way out. Third, we have warfare. Warfare is spiritual warfare. The enemy's going to go, if I can just dangle this carrot out in front of you to do something outside the will of God... And then you're going to be promised, like, I will be my own source. And then guess what will happen? I'll be fully satisfied. What happens? You run after that. You eat that carrot. And the carrot is pulled away. Then the enemy shames you. He shames you for having eaten the carrot. And so you find out, I, that's not my source. God's my source. But there's spiritual warfare that happens. And last, there's our wiring. Wiring. And our wiring is this, that we all sin. But as we looked at the Enneagram, right, we all sin, but we sin in different ways, don't we? Some people are more tempted in other ways than you. But you're tempted, but you're tempted in a different way than somebody else. And you'll be looking at them and going, I don't know why. They always, they just don't even think about it. They just go after that all the time. While you, on the other hand, are tempted in a different way. You're both sinning, but we're just sinning in different ways. We're wired differently. And so we get tempted by these things. But here's the beautiful thing. Paul tells us, That no temptation has overtaken us but what's common to people. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, God's going to provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. And that is great news. Because see, without God, we are tempted and we probably are just going to fall into it. There isn't a way of escape. There isn't an exit. There isn't a side door. But with God, he says, I'm not going to tempt you. But what I guarantee you I will do, every single time you're tempted, I will open up a door of escape that you can take so that it will not conquer you. The point is, do we take that door or not? But God is so good. He's so loving that he's saying, listen, I will open up a way of escape for you at the moment of temptation. So God, teach us to pray. Teach us. We need it. We want our prayers to be powerful and effective. Prayer is your access to the one God who wants to heal your woundedness. He wants to strengthen your weakness. He wants to stand in front of and behind you in spiritual warfare. And he understands your wiring. And he wants to have you live out of the deepest desires of your heart. He's a good God. And we should come to him with our prayers. Jesus teaches us how to do that. And we're going to go to a time of communion right now. And what I'm going to ask you to do is this. I'm going to ask you, before you come get your communion elements, I'm going to ask that if you would just, in a sense, bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want you to, well, you don't have to close your eyes. You can keep your eyes open. Because I want you to look at your outline. Because I believe it would be a shame if you came to church today and we talked on prayer and you didn't pray. I think it would be an absolutely very sad thing if today you did not pray... And approach God right now so this is your time and as you're doing that there are some people in the room who may say you know I I don't know if I believe in God yet and I I don't know if I've made that decision but maybe today for the first time you're aware that God loves you that he delights in you that he's offering you forgiveness from your sin because of what Jesus did on the cross and maybe today for the first time you want to say God I'm gonna give you my life and God, I want to receive forgiveness for everything I've ever done. I've never received that forgiveness in my life before. And I want to. And I want you to make me a new creation. So if that's you, as people's heads are bowed, they're praying. If they're Christians in the room and they're praying, they're doing their thing. But if it's you, then I want you to pray a prayer like this, right where you're seated, just quietly in the inside. God hears you. Just pray something like this. Just say, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin that you rose from the grave and that you're God. I ask you to forgive me of everything I've ever done wrong and forgive me for the things I should have done that I didn't. Would you wash me as white as snow? Would you make me a new creation on the inside and give me a new heart? Because today I give you Right now, if you prayed that prayer, will you raise your hand anywhere around the room that today was the day you prayed that prayer? You just raise your hand up. I see you right here on the end, greatest decision you could ever make. If you're up in the loft, my friends will see you up there. Right here on the side, greatest decision. It took a person to standing on a stage for me to believe it, probably about your age, greatest decision you could ever make. That's awesome. Right here on the end, greatest decision you have. Right here in the front, greatest decision you could ever make. Father, I want to pray right now for my brand new brothers and sisters who just like us at some point in our life had to make a decision to follow you. Jesus, teach us to pray, teach us to follow, teach us to be your people. May your will that is always done in your kingdom in heaven be done on earth. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. And together we said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, Visit our website at sungrove.org.